Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Joining me here uh, as I have two great guests lined up uh, in our second show of the year, uh, 2016. I'm uh, actually doing this remotely today. Usually, I'm in the studio, but today I'm remote. We've already had a uh, fantastic amount of uh, complications, but we'll seem to find our way through it. So... In case you're tuning in to hear our first guest, he's actually going to go second, and our second guest is going to go first. I appreciate everyone's patience, and that way we can get everybody on today and uh, hopefully uh, make it through without uh, any other major occurrences. So, anyways, Talent Talk, i going to tell you a little bit about the show, really centers on topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. So these are all timely topics for CEOs and entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and any type of business leaders. So I hope that you will tune in and listen each week, whether it's you know here to the live broadcast or via the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, and that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your own career in a positive way. I personally have met so many inspiring leaders at events that I've attended or spoken at and the different groups that I'm a part of, and I, I have the privilege of meeting them and uh, talking to them and, and really learning from them. And so this show is designed to give you an opportunity to listen in on the dialogue I would normally have with one of these great uh, leaders and some of the topics we might discuss or talk about and, you know, give you something that you might be able to use down the road. So uh, Talent Talk is live here every uh, Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and really can be accessed uh, the way most people do it, which is via that podcast that I mentioned. Uh, we've amassed a very large following, I think, last week. And over 260,000 people come in and listen to episodes. So really appreciate everyone doing that and being active on the podcast feed. A big thank you to all of you who show, follow the show here regularly. If you have a question for one of our guests, you can submit them via Twitter uh, by tweeting your question to at PeopleG2 and use that hashtag TalentTalk. My producer, Michael, tried to feed, feed me in the questions and we'll work them into the show. As most of you do tend to listen after the fact, you know, any suggested questions that you might like to hear of guests in the future. That's also a great way to interact with us. So my guests today will include David Bradford, a chairman of the board at Fluent Worlds and author of Up Your Game. Um, but my first guest will be uh, Tim Sackett, uh, president of HRU Technical Resources. Um, so let's go ahead and get to Tim. Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate your flexibility today with some of our technical issues and jumping on a little earlier than expected. So yeah, No you, problem. You saved us from uh, from having to fill the time with, I don't know, bad jokes or uh, reading out of a textbook or something. So, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing uh, with the, in your area with your business and in, in leadership. Um, well, I run, I run a staffing uh, contingent firm out of Michigan, and we place people nas- nationally, nationally. So it's engineering, IT, mostly autos, defense, public education, kind of the industries. You know, some of the challenges I think we're facing are is probably what all you know these companies are facing is, 
you know, we went through the recession and, and did well and came out, and now we're starting to hire and companies are starting to hire. At the same time, like all of these kind of older workers that held on through the recession are saying, hey, bye, it's time for me to retire now. Um, and so it's kind of a double whammy on the companies who are trying to hire, and there's just not enough technical talent out there. And again, that's, you know, my company helps a lot of um, larger companies, you know, attract that talent. And that's what we do. But it's, it's definitely a challenge right now across the country. Right, right. And, and so are those the primary challenges or are there other ones that are sort of specific to, you know, what your firm really specializes in on? Well, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, from a technical standpoint, I think you just don't have enough uh, graduates that are coming out that are that can fill these roles, and at the same time, and like you, you and I know, it's one thing to go out and hire an entry level grad. It's another to replace that, you know, grad with a person who's been working thirty years and is at the top of their game, you know. And so that becomes, you know, some, somewhat of the issue is a lot of companies, you know, are losing somebody that's really valuable, and they want to replace that person with someone who's really valuable. Anytime you do that, um, there's a cost, right? There's a cost to the organization to say, okay, I'm going to go take that same valuable person from a competitor and bring them to us. Well, the only way they're really going to do that is to pay more money. So now you have comp compression, you have all kinds of issues at play. Um, but it all it all hedges on, you know, it's it's the basic economics of de- supply and demand. So you know, one of the things that I, that was kind of fascinating for me in looking at uh, staffing firms like yourself that are more specialized is. You know, how far do you get into thinking about cultural fit? You know, thinking about will that individual person really be a part of a good fit for the organization? Or is it more your job to say, here are five or 10 or 20 candidates that fit your technical specifications, and it's really up to the client then to make that final decision on, on culture? How, how do you guys play in that equation? You know, it's a great question because I think then now you're starting to define probably good staffing versus bad staffing, right? A bad staffing firm is just going to give, you know, the client 20 resumes and say, okay, hey, you do the heavy lifting and figure this out. Um, A client, you know, a company like ours, which I think is on the better side of staffing, is really working with that client to understand their culture, understand the hiring manager's personality fits that they're looking for, and then we're going out and trying to match that. But we're like everybody else, you know, in, in terms of HR professionals, which is we think we got it right, right? We think this person's going to be a good fit. Until you get them in there, until they start working, sometimes you don't know. I think one of the advantages and why companies, uh, in a, really across the U.S., you see a huge influx of contingent workforce at a high level um, in, in the technical world, partly to help on that fit. They'll use a company like mine. They bring them in for three or six months, even, you know, a year, working still through me, through my company on site. And they'll go, you know what, Johnny's a really good fit. You know, I know he's working for you guys, but we want to bring him on direct and we make that transition happen. Um, And so it's almost like kind of a try and buy scenario. And the European countries have been using this at a much higher level for years and years. And, And the U.S. is starting to really warm towards it. And I think Part of that is is coming through the recession. They're a little bit nervous to hire to begin with, um, and then fit becomes so important that they go, gosh, I don't want to make this big hire. Because here's what happens, and I worked on the direct side uh, or corporate side of HR and talent acquisition as well, is it seems like once we hire somebody, we can't get rid of them. (laughs) It seems like we hire them for life, right? Even though we could go out and fire anybody at any time, 
you know, in many of our environments, I'm not, you know, uh, we don't. They they just become like the wallpaper. That, you know, it's hard to take 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 down, and it's hard to get rid of that person. And hiring managers truly feel that because now HR is kind of forcing them to go through, you know, development, and you know, we don't hire to fire, and let's give this person another shot. And eventually, the hiring manager just gives up and says, "Okay, I'll keep dealing with this low performer." And it's very typical in almost every organization across the country that that happens. So using contingent kind of is easy because then they go, oh, they're not really ours, and guess what? They're not performing very well. So, Tim, you do the dirty work and get rid of them. <laughs> we don't like that person. Bring us another one. Um, and so, But it, it, a lot of companies really like that because ultimately when they make the decision to hire, they already know. They know the person's a good worker. They know the person's a good cultural fit. They have all those answers already done. And it's a, it's a super easy transition across the board. And if it's not a good fit, it's no skin off their back to let them go. It's it's then it's it gets on my back. Well, and you could probably use that same scenario that you just described with clients. I mean, we we get clients that maybe are they pay their bill, they they show up and ask us to do work for them. They might not be the ones that you really want to work with. They may even be kind of a pain in the butt, but we keep them around because it's a part of the bottom line. It's a part of what we're kind of just used to. So yeah. I, I was just kind of thinking in this maybe a random question, but what do you guys do when maybe the client themselves, you know, they're kind of a crappy company. They're kind of a crappy <laughs> culture, right? I mean, it's not really one that you would ever choose to work in. How do you find the right people to work for them? Yeah. It's, it's easy to say this company is fantastic and let me take my fantastic, you know, person here and put them in that, plug them in, but you know what happens when that when it, when you're looking at a more difficult scenario you're so right because i think you know it's probably what, what you do as well with with clients right like i always want to work with people who want to work with me and but you know that's 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 a perfect scenario and what usually happens is some companies being run into the ground by bad leadership because they're so bad, they can't hire people. Because they can't hire people, now they have to go and use a service like mine, and I got to try to, you know, you know, you know, push them up and and make them act like they're something that they're not to get people to go to work there. At the same token, if I'm just, you know, lying to candidates and telling them what a great work environment is, and they get in there and it's a living hell, well, they're not going to be, they're not going to want to stay there, and they're and we're going to get a bad reputation. So. It is a, it's really difficult because you know, a lot of these clients, they, I've never met a company that wanted to be terrible, right? I've never met a hiring manager or a leader who wanted to be terrible. Sometimes the circumstances are what they are is that they just, they've kind of gotten to that point and they need help to get out. So, you know, we try to sell the future. We try to sell coming in and helping to turn around, you know, from that standpoint. You know, in, it, but it, it comes down to a bottom line decision sometimes. You know, um, I've worked with some bad companies, and I've worked with them because they were paying the bills and they kept the lights on. And as soon as we could get rid of them, we tried to get rid of them. <laughs> and right. and I probably had companies that, we, that used us that were the same way. Like, oh my gosh, I don't really want to have to use the staffing firm and pay this extra money to use them. And so as soon as we can stop using them, we're gonna. And, I, and we understand that, right? It's part of the game, you know, for any kind of service uh, organization that's out there. Uh, you know, and I think you try to work with it as best you can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe some of that, you, you maybe uh, some of the things you're talking about and now you do some talent blogs and HR blogs and other publications around, you know, HR topics. So, you know, what do you find of the things that HR leaders are looking to get more knowledge about, you know, let's say in the coming months or for 2016? Are there some trends there? 
Yeah, I, I think there are. I mean, there's always there's always like high level technology trends, like what's the latest tech, and let's get on that. But beyond that, if you think about what's happened over the last ten years, and again, you know, to come go through a complete recession and have almost like a a full generation of HR pros come into the environment. During a recession, there were certain things that they just didn't care about because there was no focus there. And think, you know, so one of them also was retention, right? We didn't really have an issue with retention because there was no jobs, nobody had to go anywhere to go, and so you know, we we ended up, you know, with leaders that didn't care about retention. We ended up with HR pros that they, I say they don't care. There just was not an emphasis there. Um, and so I think coming into 2016, now we have these HR leaders and really executives of companies going, well, wait a minute, what do we do for retention? How are we retaining our best talent? What are we doing about this? And it's conversations that people haven't talked about in literally a decade because of you know what, what happened with, within the financial environments. And now it's becoming super important across the board. Now, again, there's always going to be certain industries like within IT and stuff that, you know, Silicon Valley that had to focus on that throughout because of the lack of talent. But for the most part, I'm in you know the Midwest in Lansing, Michigan, and I can tell you that a manufacturing environment eight years ago was not talking about retention, <laughs> and they didn't care about retention, and they weren't focused there, and now they are. Now they need to keep their skilled trades, and they need to keep their technical people and everything else. So I think that's one thing that we're hearing more and more is how do we retain people? Turnover is an issue. Like we, we really have to focus there, which isn't necessarily a sexy topic to talk about, but it's one that has huge impact to the bottom line of the business, you know, from that standpoint. I think that rolls into probably um, employee experience, which I think we would call over the last probably 20 years employee engagement, and we're kind of taking it to the next level and say, what's this full experience that an employee has with us, and how do we make that the best possible? Because if we can make that the best possible, then we become this employer choice. The employee loves working for us. They become more productive. Now, ultimately, we hope all those dots connect and on the bottom line financially. Right, absolutely. And those are some important things. I mean, it, it's really fascinating how much. I mean, this is part of the reason why this show even came about, because it was really a lack of content or a lack of conversation happening within the HR community because everything getting slashed and just things crashing and blowing up in the economy and and so HR was really left with you know a half a person on a Friday to manage <laughs> what an entire department was managing before um, yeah. as a way to try to save money and, and so there really wasn't any conversations happening besides maybe how do I get Xanax off of the internet so yeah, uh, you know there was some real emergencies kind of happening for, for a lot of these HR folks, and that was uh, a driving force for us to try to get them some conversation or help in that area. So it sounds like you know a lot of the content and things that you're you're kind of hitting are, are, are in a similar vein to you know see if we can't, can't push the envelope a little bit and talk about some of those emerging trends that, that people should be thinking about. Yeah, and I think I think we forget to uh, like especially I, you know I I write every single day and have on HR and re, and, and recruiting topics for like the last probably six years now. And sometimes we forget when you start to write and, like, you know, and you're bringing all these great guests on and thought leadership and that sometimes we, 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 we fail to realize that every single year we have a new crop of HR people coming into the industry that have no idea what they're doing, right? They're coming out of schools. They're coming from other industries, whatever it might be. They might be coming out of operations. And so we still have to kind of keep it at a level where we go, hey, let's not talk over their heads, right? Let's teach them the, the right way to do things and the right things to talk about um, because there's always going to be an audience for that as well. All right, absolutely. 
Well, one of the things that we love to ask our guests, and hopefully you have a spectacular answer for us, so no pressure, um, yeah. but uh, is there a book that you're reading right now that you can tell us about? You know, I, it was so funny that you asked that, because um, there isn't actually a book that I'm reading, but I'll, I'll tell you there's an app that I'm really excited about that I'm going to try, which is a re- about books, so uh, I think I'll, I'll go with that route. And all right, you know, all right. It's called Blinklist.com, and what it does is it basically condenses business books, and I get literally probably one a week sent to me, so I have an entire you know library of books that I can't even get to, but it condenses them down into 15 minutes of audio that says, hey, here's, here's the guts of this book in 15 minutes. And so I'm really excited to try that app just to see if I can consume more because I, there's so many great books out there that we just get thrown on. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, like, Gladwell and some of those kind of thought leaders that are out there. So I, anything they do, I consume. But I'm big into uh, the podcast, and I'm really excited about um, doing this uh, Blinklist. Well, Blinklist sounds like a really interesting thing to check out. Um, I actually had to create a book club just so I would force myself to finish the book and then be able to go have a fun conversation with it with, with people. But I would tend to start it and I wouldn't finish it. And then, so it was a kind of a goal of mine to actually complete the books and you know have a full cohesive thought about it. It's tough, right? Because it seems like you know every you know it's, it's, there's so many books out right now, and, and then you get the e-books and you get everything. And like I don't know about you, but I feel the same way. I start a lot of books and go, ah, I'm just not being able to get through it. <laughs> yeah. and, and then another one comes and it catches my eye, and I go, oh, I want to read that one now. <laughs> so I constantly have like five books sitting on my you know nightstand next to my bed. Yeah, and I you know I'm reading a book right now called Team Genius, which I'm. I'm really enjoying, and uh, but I'll be fascinated now. Maybe if that's on there on the blink list, and compare going through because I do do listen to all my books. So the eight hours of audio, how does that translate to the maybe the fifteen minute recap that they would do, uh, and do yeah. I get this thing just out of it or not? Uh, and I'm so. definitely going to test it out because you know obviously I I I, mean, I read a lot of books, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna go and and listen to some of those that I've already read so I can do it in. And I, I, I just want to make sure, because I, I misspoke, it's Blinkist, so it's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist. In, yeah, Blinkist. So, but yeah, I'm really interested to, to find that out. Um, and again, it, it, I, I'm not naive enough to think that a 15-minute audio segment is going to give me all I need from some of the great writers and, and information that are out there. But I think what it will do is probably help me and guide me to, I want to I get into the details of that book more and probably read. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's what it will lead to. Well, yeah, so if it could be a precursor for you, so if you're getting sent all those books, at least you might be able to do the 15-minute version to say, wow, is this, are these concepts and things that are interesting? Because one of the fascinating things that we had was, uh, you know, this, a lot of the books that were written, let's say, 10 years ago, all talk about how wonderful Tiger Woods is. And so yeah. some, of, some of that has changed. The opinions have changed there. So it's been an interesting, uh, you know, where they put their put their stock into kind of proving their theories and things. So anyways, we do get get roped in. Go ahead. Sorry. I was was saying we're just about out of time here. I actually need to get to the second guest and our quick commercial break. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I really appreciate you being flexible with us today. And it was so much that we didn't get to. So we'll need to have you come back at some point and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. Cool. Thank you. All right, Tim. Uh, Thanks for being my guest today. And uh, let's see, we'll have uh, Uh, David, uh, coming up here after this quick commercial break. 
Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget you can visit us uh, on iTunes, on the podcast app. You can go to iHeartRadio on any device uh, anywhere in the world. And you can also go to talenttalkradio.com and listen to past shows, search for past guests. Um, and also, if you're interested in some of the uh, recommendations and maybe just a general update or a, a quick recap, the peopleg2.com blog you go to the website and click on blog, we have a recap of each show. Kind of gives you, a, you know, the written version and lists any of the books or links or things that the, the guest brought up. So it's a great resource for you if you're interested in, in getting more there. So we did things a little bit out of, out of order today. So I appreciate both of my guests uh, being patient with us here. But uh, we're now going to bring on uh, uh, David Bradford. He's the chairman of the board uh, at Fluent Worlds and also an author of a book called Up Your Game. So, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be with you. All right. So, please share a little bit about yourself, your background, and, uh, you know, kind of what you've been doing uh, leading up to this point. <laughs> well, gosh, it's been a long career. Uh, it started back in the 70s as I was a practicing lawyer in Los Angeles, and um, but uh, quickly morphed to the computer industry. And in 1980, I joined a company called Prime Computer. And that company was hot at the time and took off and was there for roughly five years and eventually wound up at another company called Novell. Uh, Novell was at the time the world's second largest uh, computer software company. They invented computer networking, and I was their chief legal counsel for 15 years. And the last four years reported to Dr. Eric Schmidt, who uh, he and I left about the same time. He went to Google and I went on to some other companies like uh, Fusion IO. I was the CEO of that company, and then HireVue. I was the CEO of that company, and uh, then more recently, uh, with a game-changing language learning company called Fluent Worlds. Well, it sounds like uh, quite a path, uh, and you've had quite a bit of experience there in different areas, that uh, both in technology and as it relates to it sounds like even human capital. So, uh, right. you've, you've had a long career of you know, leading these organizations and a C-suite and CEO or chairman of the board. 
So th- throughout your time in these you know, different positions you've had, what, what have you learned about effective leadership? Well, I would say, first of all, first and foremost, you have to be a leader that empathizes with his people, that you are not uh, a person that is above them, that you're beside them, that you're a team, that you're trying to accomplish whatever you're trying to achieve together. And uh, it's not, hey, I'm in the C-suite, you know, I'm somebody, I made it here. No, it's just the opposite. Leaders are meant to serve, serve their employees, serve their customers. And so I believe in serving first and all else follows. Well, that gets into uh, some very similar uh, advice we've had from from people that kind of talk about, you know, putting your people first or service-based leadership. There's a lot of different terms and things that kind of go into that, but definitely one that people have had a lot of success with. Um, kind of look at, you know, trying to make those people around you as, as good as they can be, right? Like putting everything you can into them does seem to have great benefits that are far greater than you could ever really, you know, quantify or put down on paper. It seems to be a great way that people approach the world uh, as leaders. Well, people make all the difference. And so Mm -hmm. I I live by kind of a, you know, my mantra, which is my 60-30-10 rule. And it goes like this. 60% of the success of any company that you're involved in is people-related. It's the people with whom you surround yourself. It's the people that you bring into the organization. It's their passion for the business, et cetera. 30% certainly relates to your products or your technologies or your services, whatever you might uh, supply. But again, it begins and ends with people. The, the remaining 10% is simple dumb luck, timing in the market, I guess. Well, I love that term, the, the dumb luck there, because we do always have that. We have dumb luck when it comes to finding good people. We have dumb luck when it comes to, to getting a bad apple as well, no matter what things we might do to try to prevent that. So that is always a, a big component. Yeah, I know in 2014 you wrote a book, uh, Up Your Game, uh, Six Timeless Networking Principles. So when did you uh, come to kind of appreciate that value of networking and and what is it that uh, you want readers uh, you know, of your book to really walk away from? What are some of the different lessons or important uh, topics? Well, I, I appreciate the question, uh, but uh, it's kind of bifurcated. N- number one, I learned the value of the importance of connecting with people and forming deep and abiding relationships as I was graduating from law school. I'd done really well in law school. I was in the top 20% of my class and so forth, and everybody always told me, hey, if you do really well academically, you'll just walk out of law school and you'll have a job. Well, the economy wasn't so great then, and I looked around, and I noted that all of the people that had jobs, even those that were in the bottom half of the class, those were the people that had a connection in industry or had a connection to a law firm or their cousin was a lawyer or their best friend was a lawyer, etc. They had a pathway made for them and it was via the connections and i kind of woke up and and i remember my mom saying david it's not what you know it's who you know and so i've kind of made it a lifelong endeavor to form and build lasting relationships and so the book up your game is just kind of a summary of my life and business career and how I have stood on the shoulders of others to move forward in my career and, and worked with them and, and for them. And so I think it's all about, in fact, the first principle of the book, 
the first principle of networking is to give with no thought of getting. And I've got stories and so forth that people will enjoy reading in the book about how that's blessed my life and, and raised, gosh, nearly $200 million for uh, three companies that I've been involved in. You know, I read an article, it was just kind of coincidental, that uh, yesterday on in Inc. Magazine that talked about people uh, who have an open network are far more successful than those people with a closed network. And I won't do a great job of recapping the article, but, you know, a closed network was people who tend to really only, you know, surround themselves with people who are in a particular group. So maybe you only are really networking within your own company, or maybe you're only really involved with people in a particular political party or religious group or what have you. So you have a closed network, um, and, and that network can only take you so far. And then those people with an open network that are willing to interact with and, and know and understand other people who don't necessarily fit some of their own personal um, ideologies um, were disproportionately more successful and made more money and what kind of went on it was a uh, pretty good article. So it sounds like it has some parallels to what you're talking about. I mean, when you when you have this network, when you expand who you know and you're willing to go give uh, with no thought of, of getting anything in return, that network can grow kind of exponentially. Is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. You've nailed it. Um, I can remember about eight or nine years ago, I was involved in a company and we were raising some significant capital for an international sports fund. And I, I got a call, a call from a guy who was an out-of-work sales rep. And I hadn't heard from the guy in 10 years. I met him just casually um, some years earlier. And he said, hey, can I take you to lunch? I need to pick your brain on my next, next job opportunity. And of course, we all think to ourselves, Oh, crap, you know, I, I've got so many things to do. I really can't take the time to help out, you know. But in one of the better moments of my life, I, I finally agreed to go to lunch with this guy. Long story short, as a result of our lunch meeting, the next morning I found myself. Now, the meeting was in Utah, mind you. The next morning I found myself in the presence of a Saudi prince in Beverly Hills, California, pitching him on investing $10 million in an international sports fund just because I went and had lunch with this guy. And he knew somebody in Saudi Arabia that introduced me to the prince, and the prince invited me down, jumped on a plane, and met with him down there. Now, I hate to think what would have happened had I just said, you know what, Todd, I'm just too busy, I got too much going, etc. And so my advice to your listeners is when someone reaches out to you, and you may feel like you've got a million excuses. If you can find a way to get around yourself and go to that lunch or go to that meeting or to try to help them out, believe me, the law of reciprocity exists in the universe and will come back to you many fold. Yeah, and it's especially hard when, you know, you had a, that's a great story and a great example, but you had that very, you know, quick return. Uh, on that, whereas other times I, I've had those experiences where I have helped someone or had that meeting, and it wasn't. I mean, certainly there are examples when I never got anything back out of it, and that's fine. But right. I had times when, you know, ten years later, somebody says, "You know, I really appreciate it. And I, I remembered what you said, and you know, here, let me make this you know introduction for you." And we weren't even thinking about it. Um, yeah, it, it comes back eventually, usually in most of those situations. 
you know, it's funny. It took five years about, no, let's see, six years. I, I met with this guy one time in a venture capital environment in the early 2000s here in Utah. And it was six years later that he called me back after I'd done him favors and took him around and visited with a series of VCs to kind of talk about his company. Six years later, he calls me back and he says, hey, I found this company uh, up in Salt Lake called Fusion IO. You should come chair our strategic advisory board. And my gosh, that, that absolutely changed my life. But it was six years later. And right. uh, I came in, chaired the advisory board, became CEO then, and gosh, later we took it public. Uh, we hired Steve Wozniak, the inventor of the Apple, to be our chief scientist. It was just a miracle run, really. Well, and then, you know, now you're also a, a professor at the uh, University of Utah. And this, this seems like a whole other path for you that's a great opportunity to provide, you know, guidance to, to students uh, either have or, or want to have that entrepreneurial mindset. So maybe you have some ideas in looking at uh, the time that you've spent in business, but also the time that you've spent with students. Well, what makes a, an entrepreneurial successful, excuse me, successful? What makes that that person, right. you know, achieve their, their goals. Well, what I quoted this morning to my class is, is a simple phrase. Remember this. The world needs dreamers, and the world needs doers. But most of all, the world needs dreamers that do. And so it's that execution piece. The inventor of uh, Chuck E. Cheese and uh, the Atari system is a fellow by the name of Nolan Bushnell. Uh, Nolan is an amazing entrepreneur that has had some just wonderful things happen to him. And I, I remember reading a quote from him. It says, everybody that has ever gotten up and taken a shower has had a great idea. It's the person that towels off, gets out of the shower, and goes and does something about it that changes the world. And so you got to really hone in on that execution piece because I hear great ideas every day, believe me. And uh, it's a person that will go out of their way to find a way to execute on that that makes the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that gets into, there's a lot of people that talk about it, but it's that kind of that word hustle. I mean, it's getting out there and working hard and going for it. There's probably good, some good secondary advice of knowing when to pivot or knowing when it's time to to let go if it's not working. <laughs> I've seen some people that uh, had a good idea, but the market just didn't care and kept going maybe a bit too long than they should have. But, you know, in the end, it, the hustle does seem to be a huge component to, to success because you're right. I, we probably all have good ideas all the time. I, I, I struggle with writing them down and then not overwhelming my staff with them sometimes and just finding the right time to bring up a few <laughs> things that I've thought about, right, not to... To overwhelm people, right? Well, your background, as we kind of touched on here a little bit, is in the technology field, and uh, I know you indicate that you know one of the highlights was, was uh, bringing on Steve Wozniak, and that's certainly a. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of good stories there, and uh, most people should know who he is. If they don't, then they probably should stop listening right now and go look that up. But um, <laughs> right. You know, so that was during your your, your tenure at uh, Fusion IO. So, in such a kind of fast changing market, what are the you know keys for successful companies to remember when it comes to securing the best talent available? Because I'm going to assume that Steve was one of the best people possible for you to have brought in uh, 
in that position. So how do other people kind of replicate that process in looking for the best person? Well, you know, I think it starts, one of the principles, one of my six-up principles as I talk about is being a stand-up person throughout your career. And if you're a person with integrity, if you're a person that can be relied on, if you're a person that follows up in your life and and people can trust you, then good recommendations will follow. And I, I remember when I first met Steve at a conference in Sun Valley, Idaho in July of you know, 2008, I guess it was, and uh, we had a nice chat. He handed me his business card. And, um, you know, then that night I sent him an email and I says, gee, we'd be honored if you would join our advisory board. And I thought about it and I was very careful, sent it out. I realize you're busy. You probably get these, off, you know, offers every day. But, you know, give it some thought and so forth. And I really didn't expect to hear back from the guy very quickly. But I, I heard back within 24 hours and he said I would be honored to join your advisory board. I'll, I'll never forget those words. And I, I, you know, stopped me in my tracks, and and I then replayed, you know, how, what mutual connections did Waz and I have? And it turns out he knew one of the early scientists at Novell, and uh, for whatever reason, that guy liked me, respected me, and, and we got along really well. And Waz had picked up the phone after he met me, and he'd called this mutual friend that I didn't even know was a mutual friend, and he says, what about Bradford? What about this guy? And, um, you know, the guy gave him a double thumbs up, and, and that's what prompted Steve to come back. And so in your life, as you, as you try to surround yourself with great people, I'm fond of saying, by the way, that likes attract like in business. So if you're a person of integrity, if you're a person of, you know, uh, standards and, and so forth, people like that are going to follow you into your organization. And so I guess... That's a little bit of the Waz story and uh, so forth. So if you can find uh, people, common connections, and then you build a reputation throughout your life that stands the test of time, uh, good things happen. Sounds like in this instance, you know, trust and integrity was a really important part in bringing in a highly sought-after talent, and and then it kind of grew from there. Are there any other important factors that, you know, maybe the, the best of the best might be looking for in a company? Well, you know, I I advise CEOs not to be afraid of social media. I, again, that goes to the point you made earlier, is be an open networker. And that doesn't mean on LinkedIn, There's that's a term of art on LinkedIn, where you're an open networker or you're a lion, a LinkedIn open networker. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about someone who's open to new connections. And so I get lots of LinkedIn connections every day. And I always go through and I look at them carefully to see what their background are, what their common connections to me would be, et cetera. And I'm always looking for themes of trust, right? Because once you get to know somebody and if the relationship is good, then trust happens. And when trust exists, Everything accelerates in the relationship. And so as you're running your company, as you're bringing in that talent, make sure that there is an environment of trust. Because where trust doesn't exist, and you know this intuitively from your own business, then things slow down. You don't send that email that you would otherwise send because you're trying to cover your rear end. right? And so you got to bring in people into your organization that can be trusted and there's an open environment, and people feel comfortable criticizing the CEO 
and challenging uh, the current thinking. Yeah, that's a that's a really good way to, to kind of categorize it. And I know there's a lot of people who surprises me that you take LinkedIn as an example, that they really haven't done more with it to really expand their network, both because there are people out there that can help them in their current role. They ought to be preparing for a rainy day if they don't have a role anymore, if their company folds up one day or gets sold or, you know, anything like that. I, I've been on, you know, some, some pretty impressive people's LinkedIn's and they had like 300 connections. And I'm like, how is that even possible? You almost have to try hard not to, to have had more than that. Um, right. You know, it's almost like they're ignoring it on purpose. And, and so right. some of that is a, you know, again, maybe an Achilles heel for some people. And, um, you know, at the other end as well, you have people that are kind of over networking or probably spending all of their time networking and never really doing any work. Um, so, you know, yep. finding a balance is probably the most uh, important part. But, yeah, I think you bring up a great point there about uh, really using that to your advantage and, and, and preparing for that and having that trust factor. I mean, just what you're talking about, looking through those connections and, and seeing, is this someone I think I might be able to have some commonality with, some trust with? Uh, because if I'm going to let them into the door here, they may be asking me, uh, for something at some point, right? Or you might be asking them of something uh, for something at some point, and and you need that trust factor. Right, right, right. Kind of got to a few things here. We have a few minutes left. I want to make sure we ask one of our favorite questions, and that is: Is there a book that you're reading right now that you might tell us about? I just got a book that I just started to peruse. Uh, Larry H. Miller. Larry H. Miller was the uh, CEO and founder of the Utah Jazz Organization and a number of entrepreneurial um, endeavors here in the state of Utah and built himself up from nothing to become one of the wealthiest men in the state and built really a a great organization in the Utah Jazz. I think they made the playoffs uh, 20 straight years or some ridiculous amount under Larry's uh, leadership and so forth. And, you know, recently he, he passed away about five years ago, I'm guessing. I, I don't know the exact date, but uh, his son wrote a book, and uh, it's about 99 inspiring stories of Larry H. Miller. And so uh, from what I could see of the book, and I, I haven't dug into it in depth, it looks like a good one. Uh, another book uh, that I like to read and recommend is Blueprint to a Billion, and it uh, outlines seven principles for building a a billion-dollar company. And I I think those are useful even if you're building a couple of million-dollar company and uh, so forth. And it emphasizes the importance of people and so forth. So anyway, uh, those are a couple of books that I've enjoyed over time. Well, again, as a reminder to all of our listeners, we do put all those books into our uh, blog post recap of uh, the show so you can... If you don't have a pen handy, you can get them there later on, and the link there right to Amazon, and you can buy the book and listen to it, whatever you want to do, uh, if you're interested. But uh, it's really been uh, kind of fascinating, uh, all the different things that uh, you, you've been involved in. You've mentioned some really key companies and some key people, you know, in, in so far in, in the span of your career. You know, if, if there's something that you think someone should really have taken away from our conversation today... You know, if you were to kind of summarize that, what, 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 what's maybe the one or two things they should have really grabbed onto uh, that were important, you think, that we talked about? 
Well, you know, I touched on my six up principles throughout the the uh, recording, and I, I think it would be useful to go out and get the book because it is chock full of really good, concise information and stories about not just the principle, but how it gets applied in real life and uh, so forth. You know, one of my uh, favorite and best friends, I'm sitting in my home in Provo, Utah, but Steve Young, the uh, famous NFL quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, actually blessed his first child in our home back in uh, roughly 2000 when when Braden was born. And um, he's a dear, dear friend. But the thing that Steve has taught me more than anything else is accountability. You know, he took over for Joe Montana. And for the first couple of years in the late 80s, early 90s, he struggled as a quarterback, and he struggled taking on that mantle from Montana. But Walsh finally took him aside and emphasized to him the importance of saying, hey, that was my bad, my bad play, I threw a bad pass. You know, instead of blaming, you know, the left outside tackle for failing to block and letting him go on his blind side or, you know, uh, oh, it's rainy, and so the ball slipped off my hands, et cetera, and always putting the blame on something else or somebody else. Walsh told, talked to Steve and made sure that he was accountable for everything that happened for that team and that he took it on himself. And when he started doing that, he started completing a lot more passes to Jerry Rice and, in fact, actually threw more touchdown passes than to Jerry Rice than Joe Montana ever did and became the NFL's all-time most efficient passer because of accountability. And so those people listening, one thing that you need to take away is, hey, if you're a leader, you take it on yourself. Even if someone screwed up in your organization, no, it was your bad. You hired that person. You take accountability for what's going on. So that's, that's a message I would share with the people. Yeah, that's a fantastic message. That's one that people don't always want to hear. Um, and I think it's what some of our best leaders do on a regular basis and probably all the quote-unquote other leaders really struggle with. Uh, they don't want to take the blame. They'll certainly take the credit, but taking the blame and going back and saying, how can we fix this instead of who, whose head are we going to chop off today? Is a, you know, It's a difficult thing for a lot of people to do, but it really is a part of that fundamental kind of makeup of a great leader. And I really appreciate you kind of highlighting that for us today and talking about it. You know, my, my final question is, is if people are interested in you know, learning more about uh, Fluent Worlds uh, uh, or, or more about you, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Well, I invite your listeners to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I like getting a LinkedIn request that actually has some text to it. Like, my name is Paul, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm involved in the tech world, or I'm an interior decorator, or whatever it might be. And one thing that you said on the show that I liked was this. You know, that when you start to communicate like that on LinkedIn, you're a lot more likely to get people to accept your LinkedIn requests. So I would ask you to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Look up Fluent Worlds. Here's, here's the key. I guess this would be my big ask for the day for your listeners. Go out to iTunes Store or go to your Android uh, App Store and download Fluent Worlds. It's one word uh, in those stores. It's a free initial download. 
the fundamental idea behind Fluent Worlds is initially to te- teach English as a second language, but really with the platform we'll be able to teach any language. While people travel through a 3D virtual world from the comfort of their smartphone or their tablet. And so we're changing the world of language learning with Fluent Worlds, and I would love your listeners to download the app and provide some feedback and a review. That would be great. Well, Dave, I really appreciate, again, you being on the show, and I uh, would love to have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the, the great things you're doing. And, uh, again, th- thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed it a lot. And, by the way, I just sent you a LinkedIn request. All right, we'll, we'll get linked up. I'm going to check you out first, but we'll, I'm, I think we'll get linked up. <laughs> okay. Thank All right. You. Bye-bye now. Next week, I'll be joined by uh, Joanne Corley, founder and CEO of The Human Sphere, and uh, Jason Barger, author, speaker, and consultant at uh, Step Back Leadership Consulting. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People in G2. 